Hello, my name is Anna, and if you're into scary stories and creepy real-life happenings, then I think you will love my podcast. Let me tell you a scary story. Join me every week as I read to you stories of the paranormal that actually happen to ordinary people. These are things that can't be explained and don't always make much sense, and they are sure to intrigue and to give you the shivers. So join me on your favourite podcast listening platform and let me tell you a scary story. homegrown. Join us as we take a drive down dusty back roads and discover the obscure and dark history of this country, human and otherwise, that lurk in your backyard. Welcome to episode 48, Washington. First up, we get through some weird Washington facts. Then James regales us with the story of America's first doomsday cult hideaway. Finally, we discuss a little covered murder of 13-year-old Bruce Kim. I'm your host, Chris, and joining me is James. James, how you been, bud? Good evening, my brother. How you been, brother? How's the kiddo? And how's life, man? Man, kiddo is good. Man, she's doing good, man. She's doing really good. She's growing like a weed. Um, it's so many things that you have to do and and prepare for and worry about, and it's just like it's 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 a clusterfuck. Yeah. So that's okay though, man. It's okay. Life happens, and that's why, like I said, these episodes taking a little bit longer these days. Yeah. But that's all right. It's okay. Life happens. It's free. So y'all deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, man? How's the uh, house hunting going, dude? The house hunting is miserable. Every what, time I get, I get a list built up of houses, yeah. potential, potential new studios and everything. And, and they all either go under contract or I go see them and they turn out to be turds, man. I was, uh, I, I saw this one house last week. I thought it was going to be great. Had yeah. a, almost six acres of land, had a red barn, had everything. I mean, all the, pretty much about 95% of what I wanted, but the house was basically plastic. You went inside and all the siding is this weird plastic crap. I would basically have to spend about, I'd have to spend about 30 to $50,000 to update it enough to make it where I would want to live there. Oh, that's a pain in the ass. Yeah. The kitchen was gorgeous, but the rest of the house was shite. So yeah, yeah, I had to to dismiss it, man, Uh, but I'm still looking, still looking. Well, best of luck to you, buddy. Hopefully, you find something soon. You can get settled in. I appreciate it. Uh, get your home studio built, and we'll be uh, rocking and rolling, bud. Yeah. 
Thank God. <laughs> All right, dude, why don't we go ahead and get into some of these uh, weird Washington facts that we have? Indeed we shall. You may have heard the story of an odd occurrence in Oakville when a few strange rainfalls resulted in some mysterious blobs falling from the sky that, one, were proven not to be in airplane ways, and, two, got some people sick and killed a couple of pets. That sucked. Oh, damn. One theory is that the flying jellyfish were involved. (laughs) (laughs) An author named Charles Fort, who investigates all things odd, speculated that there was a species of nearly transparent jellyfish floating in the upper atmosphere. Yeah. Over the years, pilots have seen objects in the sky that resemble jellyfish, and people have found dead birds with marks on them that look like jellyfish stings. That's cool. Damn. (laughs) <laughs> that's a little weird but that's that cool. a little messed up right there yeah yeah flying jellyfish creepy mm. a man crashed into three cars while doing 100 miles per hour down a highway in april of 2013 when police arrived they found he was wearing fake breasts and was pantless <laughs> <laughs> he told the officers he'd had a dream he was in a car crash that, that was it. Did, just, did not explain the fake breasts or no the, pants. Oh, ignore the fake titties and the porky pig. And, uh, you know. <laughs> Didn't explain any of that, yeah. Nope. As part of World War II defenses, anti-aircraft military weapons were installed atop the U.S. Department of the Interior. The problem? At 10 a.m. on September 3, 1942, a soldier accidentally pulled the trigger, releasing a round of ammunition at the Lincoln Memorial. Bullet hit the building's uh, fries, I guess that is, and damaged a few state names listed in tribute. Oops, sorry, Connecticut, Maryland, and Texas. Hey. (laughs) That guy got fired. Yeah, he did. So fired. Right before a Washington War Memorial was rededicated in 1962, two homeless men found their way inside the structure. The 2nd Infantry War Memorial, which is located near the White House Ellipse, proved to be a comfortable place to catch some undisturbed nap time. What the men didn't know was that construction on the memorial was not yet complete. According to the Washington Post, construction workers were installing an 8-inch thick piece of granite atop the rebuilt structure when they heard newspapers shuffling from inside. The men escaped being sealed inside the memorial forever. Holy crap. That would have sucked. That would have sucked. Poor guys. I mean, can you imagine waking up and, and being stuck inside? Basically, basically a, a tomb. <sighs> now, I've heard of that, like on like the Hoover Dam and stuff like that, when they built all those large dams and things like that. Yeah. People, If people fall down in the farms and they pour the concrete, they're not going to bust, you know, $200,000 worth of concrete and let it spill out over some slug that fell down the hole. He's, he's permanently in case, so. A lot of bodies in that dam. Man, that's messed up. That is messed up. They are lucky. Yeah. All right, why don't we get to a couple of quick uh, famous Washingtonians. Washingtonians, yes, sir. We have Mr. Bob, the Price is Right Barker, Morning Darrington, also Happy Gilmore fame, and Spay Your Pets. The Price Price is is Wrong, bitch. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) We also have Adam West, the smooth-talking... Walla Walla Washington, Batman 66, 
Mayor on Family Guy. <laughs> yeah, he's, he was hilarious on Family Guy. I loved him. He was awesome. But, I mean, Adam West was a fine actor. I mean, the he guy was. was hilarious. I, I I never forget the shark on the leg with the shark repellent. Oh, and that yeah. 66 movie was hilarious. Man, growing up, that scared me so bad because <laughs> as a kid, I didn't really have a concept of like how big the ocean was. I mean, it was big. I didn't know it was yeah. that big, but like, I think I, th- I really think that in like Jaws cemented my mortal fear of sharks because. Oh, well, hell, Jaws, yeah. Yeah, but like Batman was in there in the water for like a split second. He barely dipped in and he comes out and there's a shark. So I'm thinking <laughs> anytime I'm in deep water, there's going to be a shark right there waiting for me like there was for Batman. So I, th- I think that helped cement my mortal fear of sharks. Yes, the anti-shark bat repellent. I remember him calling it. Yes, because he has everything. Yipe. All right, so the next two are two famous musicians. We have Mr. Jimi Hendrix, the amazing guitar player from Seattle. Yep, he is fantastic. Kurt Cobain, lead of Nirvana, one of the bands that helped redefine rock in the 90s from Aberdeen. No comment. Also, <laughs> thanks to him, or thanks thanks to him, we also have Dave Grohl, who went on to form the Foo Fighters, another amazing band, worked with my boys at Queens of the Stone Age and some other things. But yeah, Kurt Cobain is, uh, he's, whether you like him or not, I like Nirvana. Uh, I didn't like Nirvana until I hit my, my 30s. When they first came out, I didn't like that kind of music, but later on, I... Gotcha. I Grew to appreciate it for what it was, but uh, like him or not, he helped to redefine rock in the 90s. He was also a big fan of chewing on lead. So anyway. Yeah, um, unfortunately, that was a bad deal. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's what happens when you... You know, ha- you know, like him or not, that's, you never want to have anybody's life end like that. That's too bad. That's what happens when you're married to Courtney Love, so... I guess so. Yeah. All right, buddy. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into your weird news of the day? Indeed, sir. song all right (laughs) (laughs) i do man that thing it it gets you pumped up and ready to read some news today's story is america's first doomsday cult hideaway it is from the ripley's believe it or not dated march 30th 2021 tucked away in a remote section of philadelphia pennsylvania a former meeting place of america's very first doomsday cult Named after the group's leader, Johannes Kelpus, this 40-square-foot tabernacle is built onto the side of a hill above Wissahickon Creek. I hope I pronounced that right. Sounds like you did to me. Good job. Thought to possibly be an old spring house, legend has it that this stone-framed hideaway was once a safe place for 40 monks as they awaited the end of days and the second coming. Does Reverend Cain wow. rain a bell? <laughs> <laughs> 
1694, a group of German mystics and monks dubbed the Society of the Women in the Wilderness, that's a mouthful, settled along the Wissahickon Creek in the Fairmont Park section of the newly founded Philadelphia. Their society was named after a woman in the Book of Revelation who sought refuge in the wilderness during the apocalypse. Well, the apocalypse didn't happen yet. Anyway, the monks chose the location of their cave not only for easy access to clean spring water, but because of its position on the 40th parallel. The group also created a 40-square-foot tabernacle, including an observatory where the monks practiced astronomy. It is believed to be the first observatory in the New World. That's very cool. That's very cool, man. They were ahead of their time. Heck yeah. Numerology was a sacred practice to the monks, and the number 40 held a special significance. I wonder why. The Hermits of Wissahickon. The Hermits of Wissahickon, as they were called, were led by the cave's namesake, 26-year-old Johannes Kelpius. The Transylvanian mystic and scholar was born in the same village as Vlad the Impaler and earned an M.A. in theology from the University of Altdorf. Like many <laughs> others, Altdorf, I like that name. It's weird. Sorry, I was just saying. Go on, hey, go it's on. a funny name. Like many of the others in the group, Kelpius' expertise was in medicine and music composition. I'll heal you and then we'll do some jamming. That's right. <laughs> During his time at Altdorf, Kelpius was introduced to the Pietist religious movement. Pietism is a movement within Lutheranism, yeah, all these words, that emphasizes personal holiness and devotion over mere compliance to church rituals. Kelpius soon joined a small group of young men called the Chapter of Perfection, formed by German Pietist John Jacob Zimmerman. Yeah, Jingle you almost wanted to say it, didn't you? Yeah, I, I just I said it. I said Jingleheimer <laughs> Schmidt. His name is my name too. That's right. The group believed that they were on the brink of a new spiritual age and had to prepare for Christ's return. That I will not fault them for because nobody ever knows. In 1692, the chapter of perfection was anonymously offered a free plot of land and a free passage to Pennsylvania. Kelpius believed this to be an ideal opportunity as the 17th century Pennsylvania had a reputation for religious tolerance and many Quakers, Pietists, Communitarians, and free-thinking groups had sought refuge there. Like those hippies. Dirty hippies. Yep. Passing the torch to Kelpius. Shortly before the group was set to depart for America, Zimmerman died and appointed Kelpius as the chapter of perfection's new spiritual leader. Kelpius was determined to complete his mentor's mission of awaiting Christ's return. It's said that Kelpius and the rest of the group remained in the forest even after the anticipated end of the world had come and gone, creating music and art, studying the skies, and medicinally helping those in the local community. Sounds like a bunch of hippies passing dope. <laughs> Told you. Dirty, dirty hippies, man. That's right. In fact, it wasn't until 1708 that the monks disbanded following Kelpius's death and the uh, shortage of weed, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Some of the members stayed in Philadelphia and eventually became lawyers and doctors. <laughs> Holy crap. Shit. A bunch of hippie doctors and lawyers. I love it. Three centuries have returned the site to the unruly wilderness that the monks saw when they first got there. Today, the meeting place for the Kelpius' monks, the Kelpius's, that's what it says. That's what it says. The Kelpius' monks is nothing more than a lone cave on a hill. 
A large granite monolith was placed outside of its entrance by the Rosicrucians. Rosicrucians. Hell, I don't know how you pronounce it. Yeah, from Star Trek? I I guess. In 1961, a worldwide mystical brotherhood claiming roots in ancient Egypt and considers Kelpius the original American Rosicrucian. That's it. Very cool, man. I didn't know we Written had by a uh, Stephanie Weaver. So nice job. Very, very interesting story, Steph. I like it. I didn't know we had monks in America that far back. That's cool. That is very cool. Yeah. Nice story, bud. Thank you, sir. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and get on to our main topic of the night, the murder of 13-year-old Bruce Kim. Yes, let's do that. Okay, so this case is not widely discussed in true crime circles. The main source of this case, funny enough, is uh, from a set of books I found at Half Price Books. Uh, It's called True Crime Case Histories. This one was in volume four by Jason Neal. Now, the author, Jason Neal, only knew about it because he actually lived a few blocks down from Bruce Kim when it all went down. Wow. See, now yeah. this is this is what's great. This is exactly what we shoot for. See, this the more unknown but still interesting crimes and you know, you name it, man. That's 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 perfect for this. Go for it. Very interesting. Matter of fact, a uh, Google search for murder of Bruce Kim returns only a few articles from local papers. A search for his killer, Tommy Reagan, brings up next to nothing. In fact, an image search only brings up about three pics of him. Wow. Um, but on the evening of January 1st, 1977, 13-year-old Bruce Kim attended a house party at the Lamac Apartments in rural Centralia, Washington. Centralia was, in 1977, a small town of about 10,000 people, and it was considered a twin city with neighboring Chahalas, which is only about 5,000. And the author, Jason Neal, describes it as, quote, a beautiful rural area surrounded by miles and miles of dense forest in every direction. It sounds like all of Washington, though. Yes, it does. Yeah. So I say, yeah, tell me something I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the apartment complex Bruce went to for the party, however, was anything but beautiful. It was described as an old, rundown apartment building near some railroad tracks at the north end of town. Apartment number seven belonged to an older man who was known for having wild parties where anything went. His partying included weed, LSD, alcohol, and all ages were welcomed. Now, see, that's what I was just about to say, and minor children. Mm-hmm. Like, geez. This is the kind of party I go to when I was in high school, down the street, where like either somebody's parents didn't care, or you knew, somebody knew somebody who was who was older who just like, you walked in, and you could have true. beer or whatever you want. And, but it was, yep. it was cool because everybody was chill. Yeah, there was no hostility. It was there to have a good time, and everybody knew that if one person got out of hand and fucked it up, mm-hmm. then, then we, we couldn't come back next week and hang out. You know, exactly. Plus, we didn't have phones and shit. People actually like you know had to talk to each other, which sucked ass. Anyway, <laughs> when Bruce did not return home by the next morning, his mother Joan called the Centralia police to report him missing. Now, Bruce was not one to stay out all night without calling her first. 
Joan found Bruce's bike in front of their house at 1002 L Street, but he was nowhere to be found. He's 13. 13. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't like him to stay out all night without calling first. He's 13 freaking years old. This is 13, 1977 in a small town true Washington, that. though. So you know, yeah, never, different rules. Yeah, than about, folk. Yeah, 77. I was about 10, and I, I did run the streets. So thank hey, you. Exactly. Exactly. I, I stand corrected. You stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> she went on to say that he was small for his age. According to some friends who saw him biking the day before. He was last seen wearing blue jeans, a jean jacket, and a printed t-shirt. They found no clothes missing from his room, and he had very little money on him, so as such, police ruled out Bruce having run away from home. When detectives contacted Bruce's friends, they found out he was seen heading towards a Lamac Apartments the day before. They questioned the apartment resident who was cooperative and gave police a list of attendees as he best remembered it. Police then spend the next few days questioning all the attendees one by one, but were met with a lot of silence as most of the residents were reluctant to speak with police due to all the illegal activities that took place that night, and no clues were uncovered in Bruce's disappearance. Big I shot ain't there. seen nothing, man. I ain't man. seen shit. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I wonder if like one of them was like really high still when they got there. They were like, <laughs> he was like Dave's not here, man. That's right. <laughs> Dave, oh, what's his name? Oh, wait, Ben. What? what? I, I, I get. I quit. I'm out. <laughs> no, I'm out, dog. No, no, you're 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 Ben. What? What? Who? Ben? What? No. What? <laughs> Ben's not here. No, you're Ben. What? Anyway, yeah, the next night, the doors of the Centralia Fire Department were met with a loud, excited pounding just before midnight. A man from the apartments had run the six blocks to the fire department to alert them of a fire at the complex. His knocks were met with silence, so he then ran an additional three blocks to the police department who alerted the fire department, but by the time they arrived, it was too late. The entire complex was burnt to the ground. They knocked on the damn door of the fire department, six blocks down, and all they got was, go away! I mean, jeez. Is it nobody called them? I mean, shit, a whole apartment complex is on fire? I refer you to... 1977 small town oh, okay. Washington. Okay, then okay. I get it then. If you're having a dial it'd be <laughs> Exactly. I'd be surprised if any of the phones in the apartments had or any any of the um occupants in the apartments had had a phone period. Yeah, for any of our view for any of our listeners under 40, that was the uh very poorly imitated sound of an old style rotary phone. Very Which poorly imitated. Took like yes. a half hour to dial a phone. <laughs> yeah, really did. Yeah, I mean, what 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 was the number that you were so pissed if it was in your number? It was like was it zero or one. That was zero all, the way, all the way in. Zeros all the way around and nines. Nine. So that's if, right. If your number was like nine nine zero zero nine nine, it'd take you like one hour and thirty four so minutes to dial a number. Let's explain a little more. So so as we said, it's a rotary phone. So all the numbers are in a, a circular uh, a disc. Yes. And each finger hole had three uh three or I had one number with like a bunch of stuff so it was like one through zero whatever one through nine and then zero so in order to dial the number you had to put your finger in the finger hole for like say three and then turn it to the right towards the little clicker all the then way you let, down yep. you let it go and the, the the disc 
rotates back <laughs> to the beginning. So keep that in mind when we say if you had nines or zeros, you had to hit the nine and zero, go all, do almost do a whole 360 back around, yep. let it go, wait for it to come all the way fuck back around before you can hit that nine again. It's crazy. It, it, and it's funny having to explain this because I remember dialing this thing like it was no big deal. And now here we are years and years later, decades later, explaining how the use was. I know. I mean, I remember when we, we first got our first uh, um, digital phone that had like the 20 the foot uh, line on it, you know? Yeah. And and it, it had like a little cradle and you, mm-hmm. you popped it open and it lit up and had all the buttons. I was like, Man, this is space age right here. This is awesome, man. I can yeah. actually go 20 or 30 feet with my cord. Hell yeah. Uh, I used to take it under the, the kitchen table and just lay under the table and talk on the phone. Ah, uh, nostalgia. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so back to it. Um, yeah, so the apartment complex was burnt to the ground. Not at all suspicious. Not at all. It sure just, nah, just happens. Nothing, yeah. Nothing to it. Nah. An investigation by the fire marshal found no evidence of accelerants, and the wiring in the building was very old, so there was a chance of a fire by a faulty wiring. The chance was pretty high, actually. Accelerants, for you arson-impaired individuals out there, that means like gasoline, lighter fluid, kerosene, something to make the place burn faster. Right. Okay. But something didn't sit right with the fire marshal, whose intuitions told him it was the work of an experienced arsonist. His suspicions were solidified when he learned that the complex was the very last place Bruce Kim was seen alive. Damn. Detectives told reporters, quote, If Bruce Kim's body had been in the apartment, there would have been some evidence of his remains in the fire debris. Fragments of bones, something. It is extremely rare for a body to be completely destroyed in a fire, even a holocaust as fully involved as that of the Lamac. Yep. End quote. Yep, here's a little little quick information for anybody. Let's just toss this in as to why a human body can survive a building fire of that nature and still be there smoldering once the you know fire goes out. A human body has to be exposed to 1,400 degree heat for more than three hours for it to actually burn down into powder. So I've heard. We've discussed that in the... Uh spontaneous human combustion episode we actually did we sure we did. did we, we sure, sure did, did talk yep. about that because when they cremate you they have to crank up the they have to crank up the torches they can't just use regular fire it doesn't work exactly and it does take three to four hours at the minimum yes, it so, does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. police were frustrated by the fact or i take that back they were frustrated by the lack of clues on the case but on january 13th they would get a break susan regan called the county sheriff and told them that bruce kim was most likely dead she showed them a pair of jeans that her brother, Tommy Reagan, left with her. The jeans were stained with what looked like blood at the cuffs. The lead investigator recalled, quote, She says Tommy brought her the jeans and told her he'd gotten the stains on the cuffs when he turned a body over with his foot. Susan was clear, clearly terrified when she left the jeans. 33-year-old Tommy Reagan was no stranger to trouble. He had had run-ins with the police since he was a teenager. At 15, Tommy stole a car and was sentenced to the Green Hill School, Washington's maximum security lockup for older juveniles. He and another juvenile broke out one night, stole a 1.5-ton vehicle, and led police on a 45-mile high-speed chase. <laughs> some good old boys having some fun. Yep. Them boys at it again. That's right. They drove the 1.5-ton vehicle the wrong way up the highway, 
crashed through a barrier, rammed into six other cars, and almost ran over a police officer before they were stopped. Idiots. Yeah. Reagan spent the next 17 years in and out of jail on charges that ranged from burglary, larceny, car theft, to rape and kidnapping. When Reagan was 20 years old, he was charged with kidnapping of a 14-year-old boy named Bobby at Knife Point. Reagan had approached Bobby and his friend after a baseball game one night and asked to help push his car. Once they got to his car and started pushing, Reagan brandished a switchblade knife. Bobby's friend took off, leaving Bobby to the horrors that were to come. Yeah, nice friend, asshole. Reagan dragged Bobby into a nearby forest and cut him in the ribs with the knife several times. He then sodomized the boy and dragged him into the Skookum Chuck River. That's, that's a funny word. Skookum Chuck. Really? It's a lot of K's in there. Okay. Meanwhile, Bobby's friend had gone to get the authorities. And so when Tommy was distracted by approaching police sirens, Bobby was able to get away. Reagan was captured and charged with kidnapping. At the time of Bruce Kim's disappearance, Tommy Reagan was out on parole and living in Seattle, 90 miles away. But he had been in Centralia that day visiting family. Not only that, but he had been at the party at the Lamac apartment and had been questioned by police in the days after the disappearance. With this new information and possible evidence, the police really wanted to question him again and contacted his parole officer in Seattle. According to his parole officer, he was living with someone named Christina Kithana Kempf. <laughs> what is with the words today? We got some weird names. I know. I got All some the weird F's words. and K's and everything in there. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what's with this name. Christina Kithana Kempf. Born Charles Wheeler. Had a past <laughs> similar to Reagan's. Oh, hell. When Charles was just a kid, he realized he actually identified as a girl, saying, quote, All I knew was I wanted to be a girl, and I wasn't, end quote. Back then, they simply called him transvestites and left him at that. Nobody, quote unquote, identified as anything back then. They were just a crossdresser or whatever. While in his teens, he assumed he was gay. And married at the age of 16, only to divorce at 21, he is quoted as saying, The homosexual life was a disappointment. I wanted to talk love and marriage, pots and pans, and all they wanted to talk was sex, end quote. He turned to alcohol after the divorce and became traumatically depressed and ended up in the Easter State Mental Hospital with a diagnosis of incipient schizophrenia. Hmm, damn. It was after being released that Charles decided to become Christine. He officially changed his name, started wearing women's clothes and makeup. However, lacking in funds to take the next step to make it official, she was arrested and sentenced to 20 years in prison for cashing stolen checks. She was released after only three years and within 20 days was arrested again. This is going to start this cycle of this particular individual. This this woman mm -hmm. is like... <sighs> just i mean she's given so many as, as we'll go through we'll see so many chances she she's locked up so many times sometimes for for life but then she just gets lucky and gets out only to go right back in not long after i mean i the, the number of chances this woman has is amazing yeah, so christina stated that she was in a parking lot of a grocery store when she was accosted by a man who was trying to force her to have sex 
She stabbed him to death in self-defense. At least that's the way she tells it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm, exactly. She was arrested for murder, sentenced to life in prison in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, a men's prison. Walla Walla. Who was born in Walla Walla? That would be Mr. No, 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 Walla Walla Batman. Batman. Nice That's job. right. As you can imagine, being in a men's prison, she was harassed and ridiculed by the other prisoners and criticized by the prison psychologist who told her that she was just a homosexual. Somehow, by some miracle, even though she was given a life sentence, she was released in 1973. Strangely, when she was released, she received a $1,000 payment from an anonymous donor to start a fund to get her sex changed. Since what? the don't, yeah, Ugh. yeah. Since the donation wasn't enough for a full sex change, she used it to get breast implants and hormone therapy instead. And the this was in the seventies. This was in the seventies, yeah. I honestly, this 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 ain't no joke. I'm not making fun of that or nothing. It's just that I had no idea that they were even doing that back then. Yeah, that that far back. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean I, that's because it wasn't in it wasn't in popular culture on news or on TV because of how uh, conservative TV was back then. But it was happening. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah, I get it. It's not like now where it's all over the place because uh, because social media and and uh, um and media in general has become much more open to the idea now back then no you, you couldn't you couldn't be gay you couldn't be you, uh, transvestite. Hear, you, you didn't even hear the word damn on tv hardly i mean hell you, you could hardly be black or, or mexican or asian back then because they were just too conservative everything's too crazy all right the payment came from a flamboyant church in seattle the preacher of which was a transvestite himself who had 40d fake breasts <laughs> and dressed in flowing silk robes. So very progressive church in Seattle, yep. which is not surprising. Seattle just kind of the place where progressive starts, I guess. It pretty much. Yeah. In the spring of 1973, Christine would get married again to a man named Andy. Their wedding took place in the church that made the donation, which televised their wedding and paid for their honeymoon to Hawaii. Dang. I know this woman is, is handed stuff and yet she still yeah. commits crimes and still gets out way Ign before she's supposed to. Ignant. Soon, both Christina and Andy were arrested on drug charges and sentenced to prison. Jeez. The police arrested her as Charles Wheeler and so she shared a cell with her husband Andy. Oh, jeez. How convenient. Yeah. Once again, Serving only a short time, Christine was released after only 18 months. What happened to her hubby? Still in jail. Still there, huh? Still there. She got released, but he did. So I'm saying that's why she, she's given so many opportunities, so many miracles come her way, and, and she gets. I mean, she she should have still been in, in in prison for that murder. Yeah, that ain't no shit. This time she moved to Seattle, and this is where we find her living with Tommy Reagan. While her husband Andy still sat in jail. Poor, poor Andy. <laughs> Andrew Dufresne. Andrew, that's it. <laughs> yep. yep. That's ex oh man. Good good reference. Meanwhile, on January twelfth, Tommy Reagan was pulled over in his nineteen sixty five Green Corvair for a traffic violation. 
However, since this was before he was wanted for additional questioning by police, he was only cited and released and hadn't been seen since that time. Mm. The Seattle police paid a visit to his known address and neither him nor Christina were at the apartments. Reagan also owned a brown 1965 Barracuda that was often driven by Christine, but police were cautious to approach either vehicle when spotted as it was rumored that Reagan often carried a sawed-off 22 caliber rifle. Police in Centralia went back to Reagan's sister to see if she had any more information. She told police that Reagan admitted to killing Bruce Kim and had buried the body somewhere in Yelm, Washington, which is a town about 30 miles northeast of Centralia. Hmm. Now, the area around Yelm and Centralia was surrounded by a vast and dense wilderness. Again, most of Washington, I'm sure, especially in 77. Finding a grave would prove a monumental feat. Centralia police reached out to Yelm police for help, who checked with some of Reagan's old prison buddies in the area, but they hadn't heard from him either. Detectives learned that the Corvair Reagan had had been sold the day after he was stopped for the traffic violation. They contacted the owner and impounded the car as evidence. It's pretty smart. Damn. Yeah. You know, he he, uh, he got pulled over, realized he wasn't being looked at or sought after for the disappearance. So he's like, screw it. I'm getting rid of this car because they know this car already. Police found what, they look, what looked like bloodstains on the seats and saw the undercarriage had recently scraped on something. This led them to think that Reagan had bottomed out the car somewhere in Yelm, possibly on an old logging trail when disposing of Bobby's body. Smart thinking there, coppers. True that. True that. On Friday, January 14th, Seattle police tracked down Tommy Reagan and took him into custody for breaking parole. He remained silent for the entire entire 90-mile drive from Seattle to Centralia. Now, while that was going on, Reagan's sister had come forward and given police two more items that Tommy had left behind. A shovel covered with dirt and a pocket knife. Damn. I mean, this... this Sister just this, selling his ass out. Yeah, <laughs> right up the river. Yep. Once again, she gave them more information that she didn't tell them the first time she talked to them. Man, she just has all the information. She knows everything. I teach that boy to cut the heads off her Barbie dolls. A little bad. That's right. Ex- exactly. Hell yeah. She told detectives that she didn't know the exact location that he buried him in, but said, quote, it's supposed to be near the Cougar Mountain area of Yelm. There's an old logging road, a mud hole, where you have to turn and go through a fence, a kind of rise in the land as the road bends around. There's trees, just small fir trees, end quote. Police hypothesized that the, quote, rise in the land, end quote, was where Reagan may have bottomed out the Corvair. The morning of January 16th, a team of officers searched the area near Cougar Mountain. The weather that January was miserable, rainy, and wet, making the old logging roads muddy. The forest around Yum was so thick and overgrown with blackberry bushes, vines, and fir trees, it made the search that first day a failure. The team went out the next day on the 17th, armed with aerial maps and plaster impressions of the Corvair's tire tracks. Again, smart. This is before like Fleer and all that um, oh, yeah. advanced stuff. They were they were doing old school back then. Just just sticks and, and, and impressions. That's how shit got solved, man. Got done. <laughs> That's right. Somewhere along one of the old logging roads, it came across her first clue. 
tire tracks in the mud. The mud matched what was recovered from the Corvair's tires. Following the tracks, they came upon a large hump in the road that they believed is where Reagan bottomed out the Corvair. The detectives took samples of the road to test against the dirt found on the car. Now, once the team reached the end of the tracks, they spread out and searched the surrounding area of dense forest. 100 feet from the end of the tracks, police came upon a fallen tree that had been recently burned. They also noticed drag marks in the mud near the log, found a patch of buffalo grass that was not in the ground. It had been thrown on the ground and seemed to have been used to hide something. Oh, Tommy, you dumb motherfucker. Exactly. Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. <laughs> the team began to dig with their hands, and just six inches from the surface, they came upon a body. The body was lying face down, and there were what appeared to be physical trauma. Mm. Slashes and scratches could be seen on the back, and a massive gash was found on the back of the neck. As they continued to dig, they soon came to a horrible realization. The head was missing. Holy hell. The head had been completely severed and was not in the grave with the body. When they removed the body and placed it on the ground, they found that the limbs had deep cuts in them as well, as though someone tried to remove them and gave up. Jeez. Even more horrible. When they turned the body over on its back, they could tell the body was of a boy but the boy's genitals had been completely removed. Good lord. There was also a massive incision from the pubic bone to the chest. Apparently, he, first of all, was not a very good killer anyway, but he didn't know how to dismember a body and made no. a bunch of different cuts and gave up because it was too hard. No, no I'm just reserving comment because he's just a royal bastard and I hope he burns in hell. Processing the crime scene, the only additional evidence found were a couple of scraps of toilet paper with a distinctive brown floral print. The body was taken back to Centralia for a post-mortem examination. Now, due to the cold that January, the body showed minimal signs of decomposition. Police were certain the body was that of Bruce Kim, but since there was no head for positive ID, nor teeth for a dental match, they had considered fingerprints. However, Bruce, being 13, had never been fingerprinted before. Oh, shit. This is true. So, they luckily caught a break when they learned that Bruce had had a severe leg break. They x-rayed the body they had and compared it to the x-rays from Centralia General Hospital and found they matched. The body was that, in fact, of Bruce Kim. Jeez. The initial autopsy noted that Bruce's blood alcohol content was 0.21. Still? Mm-hmm. But I guess when you die, your metabolism comes to a screeching halt. So that kid was twice the legal limit of the time. So he was and, officially plastered. And that's an, an excessive amount for most adults. But, Absolutely. For a kid. But the coroner, the coroner admitted that decomposition and blood loss can cause false results for BAC. So that was there's no yeah. way to prove that he was that drunk. I got gotcha. you. They then began, the police began to retrace all of Tommy Reagan's movements for the past three weeks. They already knew that he was at the party at the Lamac apartments. The retrace found that Reagan had borrowed a shovel from a prison friend on January 3rd at 1.30 p.m. and returned it later that evening. They found he had slept in the Barracuda one block from the apartments on the night of the fire 
and had been seen in the Yelm area on January 12th, near where the body would be found five days later. However, none of the evidence from the car proved to be useful. Now, Tommy Reagan was still being held in Seattle for a parole violation only and wasn't saying a word to investigators. Christina Kempf had disappeared, but was considered a person of interest because she lived with him. Police secured a search warrant for Christina and Tommy's apartments and for the Barracuda, and upon searching the apartment, they found work gloves caked with dirt, maps of the Helm area, and miscellaneous paperwork belonging to Tommy Reagan. They also found a story written by Tommy that told the story of a homosexual killing involving two killers and one victim. Jeez. They also found rolls of toilet paper that exact matches of the sample found in the forest near where Bruce was found. So oh, evidence damn. is just piling up, man. It's piling, it's up. piling up. This is like a oh, game of Clue where all yeah. the evidence is in one damn room. He did it in the forest with a knife and some and toilet shovel. paper. Yeah, and toilet paper, that's right. toilet paper, that's right. Yeah. Their search also uncovered a photo in an album that showed Reagan staring wide-eyed into the camera. A pentagram was drawn with blood on both cheeks. Because the initial search warrant was very specific with regards to what they seeked, they had to request another warrant in order to collect that photo they found. Jeez. Police then began to wonder if Bruce was killed as part of a cult sacrifice. Well, I'm going to tell you what, you never know. Back in 77, you never did know. You sure don't, man. All the drugs and shit that's going on back then, hell yeah. And with that, let's take a quick break. Welcome to Pineapple Pizza Podcast. Where we serve up delicious slices of mythology, cryptozoology, and urban legends. Ashley is the Mythbuster. Tiresias is finally just like, it was you, Kay. <laughs> Emily is the cryptid hunter. And it's this guy that's bending over and farting into the face of this absolutely horrified cat, but the cat is like, no! <laughs> and Lindsay is the storyteller. <laughs> Am I pretty? I'm like, I'm a snack. <laughs> She'd be like, what's a snack? Do you have candy? Pineapple Pizza Podcast. Stop on by for a slice, a story, and a laugh. Questioning the other residents, police learned of a third car, a Toyota, that Christine owned that was still in the apartment parking lot. One resident told the police that Christine had told them that Reagan had accidentally hit a young boy with his car, breaking his neck. Christine had further told the resident that Reagan had panicked and buried the body. After obtaining a third warrant, police uncovered pickaxes, rope, and an army shovel in the back of the Toyota. Police decided to question the church minister who had donated money to Christine as well as hosted her wedding. When they arrived, they noted the church was really more akin to a cult. Police found that the church is where Reagan had taken the photo with the pentagrams on his face. They met with a resident who had actually taken the photo who claimed it was all just a joke, that Tommy was not involved in anything satanic. Oh, sure it was. It's just a joke, right? <laughs> You know what else is a joke? A tailpipe and the banana. That's right. Or a banana and banana tailpipe. tailpipe, that's right. None of the residents had seen Christine in quite some time, and very few of them had even remembered Reagan. On Wednesday, July 19th, police officially charged Reagan with aggravated murder in the first degree, the only crime in Washington that carried a mandatory death sentence. Now, aggravated murder is when a homicide takes place in conjunction with another crime. 
So prosecutors believe that Bruce had been killed in an attempt to cover up his rape by Reagan. Yeah, because if they left him alive, of course, he'd point him out. Right. However, they had no evidence that Reagan had raped Bruce. On January 25th, Reagan appeared in court and pled not guilty to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree. Finally, on February 8th, Christine Kemp walked into a police station with her attorney. She told police that she had nothing to do with the murder and had no knowledge of it at all. However, her tune quickly changed when the police offered her full immunity if she could testify against Reagan. Uh-huh. Bing! Yep. Light bulb. I seen it. I seen it. <laughs> exactly. I seen it. it all. I seen it. Start singing like a bird. Exactly. Ridiculous. Police then went and interviewed Bobby, the boy Reagan had kidnapped 13 years earlier. Now, this is when Bobby finally revealed to the police what all had happened when he was taken into the woods. Mm. After being taken into the woods, Reagan put the switchblade up to his throat and threatened to, quote, cut off his genitals, end quote, if he didn't cooperate. Bobby was then raped orally and anally before escaping. Even with Bobby's testimony, prosecutors admitted that this was an uphill battle to make the aggravated murder charge stick. Now, another witness would come forward who claimed to have seen Reagan having sex with Bruce in the early hours of January 2nd. While this testimony didn't prove rape, it did put Reagan with Bruce the night of his disappearance. Shit. Reagan's trial was set for April 1977. Just before the start of the trial, his attorney called police and told them that Reagan wanted to deal. Reagan would plead guilty to a lesser charge of second-degree murder if it would spare his sister, who was pregnant at the time, from testifying. He was concerned that having to testify would endanger the baby. Oh, mm-hmm. how nice of that little killer. Thought for little murderer, yeah. Bastard. Second-degree murder is committed when a person intentionally kills another person. Premeditation is not required. It also carries life sentence as opposed to the death penalty. And while not part of the deal, Reagan stated that he would also lead the detectives to the location of Bruce's head. Jeez. Again, how nice is that what killer? What a nice murderer. Yes, he is. He's a good murderer. you are. Prosecutors accepted the deal. And as Reagan already had three felonies, charges were filed on Sunday, April 17th, accusing him of being a habitual criminal. Conviction on the habitual criminal charge brings a mandatory life sentence and a person found to be a sexual psychopath cannot be released on parole. So this is the the path they were hoping to get to keep him in jail. On April 18th, 1977, Tommy Reagan pleaded guilty to second degree murder and led detectives to the head of Bruce Kim. Had they not taken the deal, they stated that Bruce's head would likely have never been found. Yeah. yeah. The lead detective stated, quote, it was buried in brush so thick a coyote couldn't crawl through it, end quote. Damn. 300 yards from the gravesite, the police located the decomposing head inside some dense blackberry bushes. So it was close he to, it was it. close to where, yeah, it was close to where. The... Mm-hmm. He just, he just at arm's length, just threw it away as, fast, as hard as he could Jeez. throw it, just where it landed. Yeah. Using dental records, they were able to confirm it to be the identity of Bruce Kemp. Reagan finally told police what went down that night. Bruce and Reagan were hanging out in the parking lot of the apartment complex. Reagan stated that he and Bruce were extremely drunk and had a dispute. At one point, Bruce swore at Reagan 
which threw Reagan into a rage. Okay, so we got a 13-year-old kid arguing with a 33-year-old guy. Mm-hmm. And they're fighting and arguing. And they're, and they're drunk. They're, poss- they're extremely drunk. Stupid. He wrapped his hands around Bruce's throat and squeezed. Reagan didn't even realize he was dead. Quote, I didn't realize I'd killed him. I thought he was breathing, end quote. He's a small 13-year-old boy. You're a 33-year-old yeah. jackass. I had no you're, idea. You're... Oh, oh, he did? Ah, oh, damn. Yeah. He put the body in the trunk of the Corvair and drove to Seattle. As he drove along the logging road, Reagan threw Bruce's clothes out of the car. Later, police were able to locate several pieces of clothing in the area Reagan described. Sometime later, he had driven back to Yelm, removed Bruce's head to avoid identification, and buried the body. He also removed the genitals at that time, though when asked why he claimed to not remember doing it, nor making any of the additional mutilations, slash marks, or attempted dismemberments. Due to the media attention the case was getting in Centralia, the trial was moved from Lewis County to Pacific County. Now, during one of the drives back to Lewis County Jail, they passed a hamburger stand Reagan was familiar with. Reagan whined that he would probably never taste another milkshake for the rest of his life. Too bad. He's tasting a milkshake. Not the kind he likes, though. No, it's going to be be a milkshake with a meat straw. Yep, that's it. Chief Jones, though, the cop that was driving him, was a fair man. And as author Jason Neal states, Chief Jones was a firm believer that all men deserve some sense of dignity, regardless of what they may have done in their lives, end quote. He deserves a gunshot to the head. And so Jones... (laughs) And so Chief Jones stopped and bought Reagan his last milkshake. That last act of kindness would turn out to be a big payoff for law enforcement. A few days later, Reagan asked to speak to police chief Jones. Reagan said, quote, it came down just like you had put it together. I trust you. I won't talk to anyone but you. There are some things I could clear up if I knew I wouldn't get prosecuted for it. I could clear the board some, end quote. In an extremely controversial move, Chief Jones spoke to prosecutors and asked to grant immunity for Reagan for any prosecution of crimes other than homicide or crimes out of his jurisdiction, and the prosecution agreed. Reagan then admitted to setting the Lamac apartments on fire. On the evening of January 5th, just before midnight, Reagan was parked near the building. Quote, it was so ugly. I just went back to burn it down because it was so ugly, end quote. He told the police that he was drunk and simply wedged newspaper into the frame of the building and lit it ablaze. Damn, how rickety is a damn apartment building if all it took was newspaper to set that mug on fire and burn it to the ground? No shit. No shit. It was was held together by matchsticks and freaking like uh, kindling or something. I was going to say, and I don't know how the wood can be so dry, right? Because I'm sorry, the Pacific Northwest is very humid, lots of rain constantly. Yeah. So -hmm. I don't know how it'd be like a matchbox. It'd have to be. Yeah, it, it went up apparently fast. So Shit. He also admitted to setting several other fires in the area, including forest fires, buildings, and bridges, with no regard for human life. Just a wonderful human being, I swear. All around. Man of the year. Yep. He said he always just used newspapers and a match. He then confessed to several other burglaries, larcenies, assaults, and another rape of a young boy. On Wednesday, April 20th, 
prosecutors filed additional charges against Reagan, including first degree assault and two counts of sodomy for what he did to Bobby in 1963. So they heaped it on. Oh, yeah. Or at least what they could, anyway. Oh, yeah. Reagan would be convicted of second degree murder, being a habitual criminal, second degree assault with a deadly weapon in the first degree, and two counts of sodomy for his rape of another boy in 1974. As of today, Tommy Reagan, who is now 77, is still incarcerated in the Monroe Correctional Complex in Monroe, Washington. Okay, well, I'm going up that way. I think I'm going to go to Monroe and pay that bastard a visit. You're going to give him a, a different kind of conjugal visit, one I'm where there's say, a... come on in here. Gun barrel up his ass? Nope, just twist his head off. Oh, okay. That, I mean, that seems appropriate. I mean, you know... <laughs> I just snapped that shit. Punishment fits the crime. Pull his head off. I don't care if he is 77 years old. Be easier Probably to make snap it. it. I yeah. was just going to say that to make it easier to do that, yeah. Brittle old bastard. I'm surprised yeah. somebody killed him. I mean, because rapists, child molesters, you know, per, you know, sycophants like that always end up getting killed in prison because mm -hmm. there's honor among thieves, as they say, you know. Yeah. Like if you murder or armed robbery, at least, yeah, you, you did something bad and you're in prison, but... Yeah, if you Especially do some sex crimes killers. and things like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, they'll tear you apart. Oh, yeah. Literally. Yeah. So, oh, you wanted to go sodomize little boys. Guess what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll see you in the shower about 9 o'clock. Fair place, uh, or turnabout's fair player, or That's turnabout's it. a bitch, whatever they say. Damn straight it is. Yeah. Okay, so that is the story of the murder of Bruce Kim. That, I'm going to tell you what, man, for something you said as, you know, obscure as it was, that's a hell of a lot of information. I, yeah. Good well, job, man. Again, the, the vast majority of it, like, like 80% came from that, that book by Jason Neal. Uh, the rest, I actually, I found, um, a bunch of information through, uh, newspapers.com okay. and newspaperarchive.com. I found actual articles of what went down during the time. So I was able to pull information from that too. But other than that, I mean, I only had four sources for this one. Usually I have like seven or eight sources for our gotcha. stories, but four, thankfully, uh, Jason Neal had 85% of the information. So yeah, but yeah, well, there's well done, sir. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was quite an interesting story. I mean, it has, it, it's just, it's small towns, Washington in 77. It's just got all the hallmarks of just, you know, people who are bored apparently. Yep. Yeah. Smoking too much damn dope. Or not enough, maybe. I don't or know. Not they're enough, not, true. Not calm enough, you know? Yeah. <laughs> a little too stressed. All right, but why don't you tell the folks at home um, where else they can find us and where else we're at, um, where they can find us if they want to reach out to us and, and, and talk to us and all that good stuff. You got it, brother. Of course, we are on the three, the, the axis of evil. We're Facebook, we have Instagram, and we are on Twitter under State of Fear Podcast. We also can be found anywhere you listen to your podcast, Spotify, Google, you know, Apple, you name it, we're there. Whichever uh, we app also, you're listening to it now. Absolutely. We, we even have a YouTube channel. Uh, we have a Public website. If you want to get some State of Fear merchandise, you go to tpublic.com, search State of Fear. And we got we, the Patreon. We do have the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash, I believe it's state dash of dash fear. If I'm not mistaken, might be. <laughs> you are mistaken. While. It's state of fear, one word. 
Okay. Well, okay. Then thank you for the correction. There you go. There it is. State of fear, one word, and you'll appreciate find it. it. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Another quick reminder, if you just want to take a few minutes out of your day and submit a, a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen that allows you to do so, if you'd like to submit a good rating for us and take a snapshot of that uh, rating and email it to stateoffearpodcast at gmail.com, you will be rewarded with a 1996 collector's edition x-files postcard we do we do have a few left so we do while while supplies last as they say get them while we got them yes even if you don't want the uh the gift card or the the postcard you know if you don't mind just uh hop on over and drop us a little review or rate us more importantly even if you want to leave a two-word review that said not bad and just give us a five-star rating. That's fine. Just, you know, and I, just, uh, and I also know. Over. Yeah. And I also, like I said, for the YouTubers out there, if you just click to subscribe, you don't have to get the notifications if you don't want to, but right. if you could just subscribe for us, that would be fantastic. Oh, and, and uh, keep leaving comments. We got another cool comment the other day on another one of our episodes on YouTube. Somebody from um, Hobbs uh, Reservoir or nearby Hobbs Reservoir knew about the area and commented on that on that video. So nice, nice. It was cool to hear from them. So yeah, so if if you if you uh, live in that area or just comment, we love I love seeing the comments on YouTube. So yeah, please do. Amen. All right, man. Great episode. Great story. Let me tell you, man. I am ready to head on to the next state because next state is one of our favorites. Good old West Virginian. West Virginia. There's man. Let me tell you. You can make Looking a career up, out of that state. <laughs> oh, gosh. No kidding. We could do a, like, a 90-parter on West Virginia. There's so much. Like, just looking up information on West Virginia, was just, I was like, man, what do I pick? And, you know, obviously yeah. there's the more uh, there's the more uh, well-known stuff like like the Mothman Absolutely. Uh, and the Braxton County Monster and all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, I was like, man, this is going to be hard to pick. So, But, uh, yeah, I found something fun for um, for West Virginia. Very cool, man. So I'm um, looking forward to getting to that. So let's uh let's get in the car and head on over to old yeah, West Virginia. We got to, man. Let's get on down the road, brother. What do you say? Let's do it. All right, guys. We'll see y'all next week. Take care, guys. Okay.